This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Live from London, I'm Richard Quest in for Julia Chatterley. And this is your Friday Need to Know. China tensions. Now it's Beijing's turn to order a U.S. consulate this time to be closed. Paying the price of fraud, Goldman Sachs is to pay $4 billion to the Malaysian government over one MDB. And a new 737 probe. New problems for existing planes that have been in storage. We'll explain what's gone wrong. It is Friday, and this is First News. Julia's off today. It's Friday. It's the end of the week. I'm at the helm. And an interesting day. And it's all about China and it's all about tensions as a result of the Chinese decision to order the closure of an American consulate in China. Tit for tat. And now the markets are giving their reaction. There are tensions over these fresh moves by China ordering the closure of the consulate in Chengdu. The biggest reaction, take a look, 3.8% down in Shanghai, 2.2% off in Hong Kong. Kong, the hangs and the Shanghai composite was sharply lower. In Wall Street, there we're set to drop for a second session. It is the tech stocks that are the weakest in pre-market, but they're all pretty much the same. Look, a quarter, a quarter, uh, three quarters, all right, for the Nasdaq. Um, Intel's is set also to fall after uh, perhaps down as much as 14%. It's offered weak Q3 guidance. And Thursday's weak jobs data and the U.S. stimulus uncertainty, that is also giving a lot of concern as well. More than a thousand new COVID deaths in the United States on Thursday. A thousand at this stage in the pandemic. Europe is weak. Despite new signs of economy that might be recovering, the European services and manufacturing sectors were back into expansion. But so much of that can just be regarded as the bounce back from the extreme lows that they saw. As a result, all off at least 1%, with Germany off more than 1.5%. The German market, of course, has specific factors that relate to all of this. Here we go, back to uh, today, and these are the drivers. China has ordered the United States to close its consulate in Chengdu. It's retaliation for the U.S. ordering the Chinese to close the consulate in Houston, in Texas. Now, this is Mike Pompeo's criticism of the Chinese Communist Party. President Reagan said that he dealt with the Soviet Union on the basis of trust, but verify. When it comes to the CCP, I say we must distrust and verify. We must induce China to change in more creative and assertive ways because Beijing's actions threaten our people and our prosperity. 
David Culver is in Beijing. David's with me now. All right, the U.S. did theirs. China's done theirs in retaliation. Does it stop here? Do both sides withdraw to fight another day? The reality is we were expecting, Richard, this retaliation because, quite frankly, China told us they were going to retaliate in some manner, this obviously being their response in closing the Chengdu consulate. Does it stop here? I think you just need to listen to the words of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and you heard some of it there, how he's even shifting how he looks at the Chinese Communist Party, no longer using the Reagan trust but verify, as Reagan did with the Soviet Union, but instead distrust but verify. He goes on to say, while he recognizes the difficulty in, in confronting China, and he's almost saying this to try to rally up other nations as well. We saw him as he traveled to the UK and he traveled to Denmark just this past week. He's saying that it's difficult to sever the ties, and he's not calling for that. He says there is still engagement, but he goes on to say that uh, because of the economic ties, something that we've talked about a good amount, uh, and how integrated China is into the global economy, he believes that China will ultimately come around because he says they're more reliant on the U.S. than the U.S. is on China. That's their perspective. Chinese foreign ministry is saying they're going to hold their ground. They are not budging on this. And they seem to be committed to at least rhetoric uh, and rhetoric, how they're approaching this, continue pushing back against it. Uh, the question is going to be, you know, if the U.S., acts farther and goes a little bit more into this and perhaps closes another consulate, where does China act from there? Because they were feeling the pressure for this one. I mean, domestically, they were feeling the pressure that they had to act, and this was their decision to close the Chengdu consulate. Not the biggest consulate for the U.S. here, not the, the largest loss from a diplomatic standpoint, but nonetheless significant, Richard. Right, but David, um, when it comes to China and the U.S., we have... Huawei, we have the, uh, the allegations of, uh, of camps, work labor camps. We've got human rights abuses. We've now got this business with the, uh, the consulates. The list goes, oh, of course, to say that we've got the extradition, of course, of Huawei's uh, CFO. The list goes on and on. And we've got the trade tariffs. Is China looking to find common ground to put it right? Or is China happy with the fact, or at least can live with the fact, that there is this poisoned well of relations between the two? And, and I can add to that list, South China Sea and the pandemic as well. So you're right, there's a long list. I think from the way that we're hearing the, the Chinese foreign ministry come out against this is that they seem a bit unsettled. I mean, they're certainly bringing forth the rhetoric. This was the first time in, in recent weeks that they've actually stepped up with the action. But I think, again, they had to from the nationalist rising here that they couldn't push against. And state media certainly suggests that this is what it's going to be like in, in the near future as we run up to November. If you're looking at kind of an exit ramp from all of this, perhaps it is the November election. But even then, there's still bipartisan support in confronting China, if not on the economic issues like Trump has, uh, perhaps more on national security. So they're still going to face some sort of strong end on the U.S. side that they're going to have to try to negotiate with. 
David Carver, who is in Beijing. David, uh, thank you. Now to Washington. Everybody knows that a stimulus deal will be done. It's just a question of when and what the final price will be, as long as well as its components. The issue, of course, the most pressing one is the $600 a week unemployment benefit extra that expires at the end of this month. At a time of rising unemployment, it would appear once again. Phil Mattingly is with me. They would dearly love, Republicans would dearly love to somehow get rid of it. They say it is a disincentive to going back to work, but they can't. Not yet. So what happens? Yeah, look, I think they're just as cognizant of the unemployment uh, kind of view or environment throughout the country as everybody else is. And they also know that they need Democratic support for anything they want to pass. And therefore, Democrats who want to extend the flat $600 through the end of the year are going to have a voice in this. What Republicans are looking at right now is essentially, instead of a flat rate, they want to try and use a percentage. What they're trying to do is make sure the states, which obviously run state-based uh, unemployment checks, can be able to factor in about 70% of wage replacement, as opposed to what Democrats we're looking for in that initial flat rate of $600 was about 100%. And in many cases, it has gone above 100%. The issue here, Richard, and I think you know this, is nobody set out to have a $600 flat rate. The reason why they ended up at that level, at that number, and at a flat rate is because the state unemployment systems weren't are too antiquated to actually uh, do anything more technical than that. So how this all plays out over the course of the next couple of weeks is going to be really, really fascinating and also enormously important. You mentioned the deadline, July 31st. Some of those checks will stop coming on Friday or Saturday, today or tomorrow. Uh, there are real people who really want and need this money. Lawmakers agree that something is going to be extended. It's just a matter of what and right now when. Uh, Phil Mattingly on Capitol Hill. I think, Phil, the, the words ringing in my ears from what you said, real people that need this real money because uh, I would just add <clears throat> they have real bills to pay. Thank you, Phil Mattingly in Washington to New York and uh, Claire Sebastian. Uh, Goldman Sachs is paying $4 billion to the Malaysian government over 1MDB. Um, so this is a huge amount of money for some pretty egregious behaviour when Goldman basically facilitated fraud on a vast scale. Yeah, Richard, I think this is more than some were expecting. It, the, the fine isn't all in cash, so it's $2.5 billion in a payment directly to the Malaysian government. $1.4 billion of this uh, comes from proceeds from assets seized by governments around the world as a part of this scandal. So that doesn't come at a cost to Goldman, but still... The number is very large. The stock, though, up slightly today. I think there's a bit of relief that part of this cloud hanging over the company has now been lifted. But while this absolves Goldman of any criminal responsibility in Malaysia, along with their subsidiaries and certain directors, it does not end the saga. They still need uh, to try to find some resolution with the U.S. Justice Department, which has been investigating uh, this. There are two former uh, bankers uh, who have faced charges, one of them in particular now awaiting sentencing in the U.S., so this is a closing of an important chapter, but it doesn't end this saga, which has been hanging over Goldman now uh, for the past several years. And they will, Richard, have to set aside more money uh, than they had originally provisioned to pay for this. Anybody who's read Billion Dollar Whale um, leaves the whole issue uh, feeling good grief. How on earth did Goldman get this so wrong? And, and allow themselves to mesh themselves in what would appear to have been such naked and obvious uh, fraud. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that Goldman's side of the story all along has been that this this wasn't you know something that was systemic to the firm. This was two rogue or several rogue uh, employees who who have now pleaded guilty, at least one of them, to to paying bribes and uh, and and violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in doing this. But they did say today, Richard, there are lessons to be learned. I think uh, there is a sense of humility, of course, coming down uh, on the other side of this, and of course. The big unknown here is this Malaysian financier, Joe Lowe, who was, who was de facto in charge of 1MDB, uh, who is also being charged in relation to this. It was his lavish lifestyle, of course, that led to these funds allegedly being siphoned off and used for things like Picasso paintings and funding the Wolf of Wall Street. It isn't actually clear where he is or how he is going to be uh, made to, to, to be accountable for his role in this yet. And of course, Jolo, who was the man behind it all, supposedly has reached agreements with the authorities, but we haven't heard much more on that either since the beginning of the year. All right, Claire Sebastian, Claire, thank you. There's a lot happening around the world today. These are the other stories making news. The Iranian media says several people were injured after a US fighter jet made a close approach to an Iranian fighter jet. Uh, according to uh, Iranian passenger plane in midair. The incident over Syria caused panic on board and forced the Iranian plane to descend rapidly. The US, as its pilot, inspected the jet to ensure it was not a threat to US-led forces in the area. <clears throat> President Trump is scraping, uh, scrapping plans, I beg your pardon, to hold part of his presidential convention in Jacksonville, Florida. It's a major U-turn for, for the president, who previously said he would give his acceptance speech in front of big crowds there. The event had already been moved from the city of Charlotte after North Carolina's governor vowed and voiced public health concerns. Now the president is admitting it's a problem in Florida too. I looked at my team and I said... The timing for this event is not right, it's just not right with what's happened recently, the flare-up in Florida. To have a big convention is not the right time. It's uh, really something that, for me, I have to protect the American people. That's what I've always done. That's what I always will do. That's what I'm about. In England, the new mask mandate came into force today for shops and enclosed public spaces. At the same time, there was economic data that showed that retail sales rebounded strongly last month to the part where they were before the pandemic. Anna Stewart is with me. We'll deal with retail sales second. Let's first of all deal with the, the, the mask mandate. So what are the rules in England now? So you know, Richard, have to wear a face covering. It doesn't have to be a surgical mask, but some sort of covering across your nose and mouth in shops and some other public enclosed spaces like airports, train stations, the post office and so on. Now, failure to do so could, I say could, result in a fine of £100. That's a little over $125. But enforcement isn't expected to be very strict. It certainly hasn't been on public transport, where this has already been the law for a few weeks. Uh, retailers today, such as Sainsbury's, the supermarket chain here, have already said that they encourage their customers to wear a mask, but they will not be enforcing this themselves. And the police, who actually can issue a fine and can enforce this, have said, for instance, the London Met Police have said they will not have face mask patrols. This is something they will only intervene as a sort of last resort if there's some sort of aggressive incident in a shop. Um, currently, three out of 10 people in England and the UK wear a face mask. That's according to a poll by Ipsos Mori. But, Richard, apparently nine out of ten do support this new measure. So perhaps the tide will turn there. 
on this retail sales, I, I had to read this story several times to make sure I was fully understanding. Are, are, you really, are we really being told that retail sales, even though people haven't been able to go shopping as freely, have bounced back to the point where they were before the pandemic? Well, yes, overall retail sales nearly at pre-lockdown levels, but don't get too excited. I've spoken to economists. What we're seeing here is, yes, a boost for online sales, a boost for food sales. If you look at some of the brick and mortar stores that sell clothes, that sell shoes, they are still down 35% from February. And also what is kind of retail sales gain is non-retail sales pain. So people may be buying more food to eat at home. They're not spending that money going to the restaurant. They might, buy, they might buy a lovely expensive exercise bike, but they are not spending money going to the gym and so on. Hospitality has taken a massive dive. And speaking to one economist just now, they said, just to add a little bit more gloom to this view, Richard, that in real time, the CHAPS payment data has already tailed off in July. That is data you get in real time from the Bank of England. So it suggests that purse strings are actually already tightening. And that's not a surprise if you consider the furlough scheme is due to end in October and mass unemployment potentially looms. Richard? I'm not surprised, Anna Stewart. Pent-up demand followed by pe- uh, tightening of purse strings. Anna Stewart, one other headline to bring you. The US, the top US infectious disease expert, uh, of course, Dr. Fauci, failed to impress with baseball skills. He threw the ceremonial first pitch uh, at the season opener in Washington on Thursday night. His toss was far off the mark. But doesn't matter. The game was between the Washington Nationals and the New York Yankees. Coming up on First Move, Wall Street has it wrong, says Stephen Roach, my next guest. He predicts there will be a double-dip recession. Um, we'll discuss the data behind that prognostication. And corporate leadership in the age of COVID-19. Jean Cote led Honeywell through the financial crisis. Winning now, winning later. But short-termism versus long-termism. How can you plan long-term when you don't really know what's going to happen next week? It's all coming up. It's First Move. I'm Richard Infajulia. Welcome back. It's First Move uh, today. Coming live from London, I'm Richard Quest. I'm in for Julia, who's having a long weekend. Uh, the futures are lower, which is not surprising when you think about all that's going on at the moment. Down day in Asia, down day in Europe, and, you, and the US is not going to be able to buck that trend at the moment, with the Nasdaq having the worst of it off over 1%. And that's because of the reason why, and it's all to do with US-China re- uh, relations, <coughs> excuse me, which sets the text for the disappointing losses. Intel is set to fall more than 13% on earnings, which it beat but offered weak guidance. And it is all about guidance, and it's also delaying the rollout of its next generation chips. To gold, gold is moving higher once again. It's approaching $1,900 at the moment. Silver is also higher, and that's on its track for its best weekly gain in decades. Again, it's always in safe havens. Stephen Roach is with me, the senior fellow at Yale University and former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. Stephen, uh, thank you, sir. I appreciate you, you, your time today. Um, the, the market is on a tear. The market has these hiccups when China or something comes along, but it seems to have set a tone uh, of, uh, of being of rising that you think might be way overdone. 
That's correct, Richard. First of all, uh, good to see you and glad to hear that you're hopefully feeling better. Thank you. Um, the Thank markets you. are priced for what we call a V-shaped recovery, a, a short recession followed by an explosive, unrelenting uh, upward rebound. That's unlikely to be the case. First of all, in the United States, if you look at our recession since the end of World War II, there have been nine of them, and eight of them have been so-called double dips, where the economy goes up for a quarter in recovery, seems strong, and then falls back, contracts, and then resumes growing again. Two of, two of the nine have actually been triple dips. We've seen this twice in um, the, the, um, uh, the mid-70s and again uh, in the early uh, 80s. And today, you don't want to just go on the basis of history, but um, we have a, what I think is going to be a very difficult normalization uh, post-COVID. Uh, you just reported in your earlier segment a sharp rebound in retail sales in the UK. The problem with that um, uh, series is it only covers spending on goods, but does not cover spending on services where the behavioral shock is likely to be enduring in travel, leisure, restaurants, uh, and the like. So uh, watch out for a double dip. I think it's coming in the U.S. and probably in the U.K. as well. Which begs and raises the question, the dollar. The dollar has been strong, and the knee-jerk reaction is, well, of course it is. It is the safe haven, the large, the reserve currency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The threat to that has where comes from where? The euro? Ugh, Europe can't get its act together even when it does do a deal. China? Still very much under pressure. But you believe the dollar is set for a fall. Why? Um, three reasons, Richard. One, uh, macroeconomic. Uh, we have um, entered this pandemic in the United States with an extremely low domestic savings rate, one and a half percent of national income in the first quarter of 2020. Courtesy of exploding budget deficits, that uh, domestic savings rate is going sharply negative. It'll blow up our current account into a record deficit, and that creates um, a weaker dollar. Secondly, we have squandered our leadership role in the world. Uh, we're leading the charge in deglobalization, um, decoupling, protectionism. We've blown it on COVID containment. We have a racial problem, the likes of which uh, none of us have ever seen. Uh, and thirdly, I would challenge you in your uh, view that there is no alternative to the dollar. That's the so-called TINA defense. There is no alternative. Uh, I've been a Eurosceptic all my life. I'm no longer that because I think this deal is a big deal. It gave um, uh, the European Monetary Union the missing piece in its arsenal of policy tools, fiscal policy, and a sovereign bond issuance to go along with it. I like the euro, it's undervalued, the dollar's overvalued, and a major correction is coming. Stephen, um, as we face the potential of a double dip, as you say, and we do look forward, briefly, Stephen, is there, is there a glimmer of, of optimism? As we come on a Friday, let's try, is, is there some optimism that you can leave me with? Uh, there's always optimism. I think the optimism has to be in the spirit of humanity. Americans, uh, uh, Brits, uh, even Chinese who are being vilified by um, uh, American uh, statesmen, so-called statesmen, as never before. 
they also have a lot of spirit. And I think if we allow the human spirit uh, to take over, we'll do better than our political leaders uh, are uh, uh, in, in the direction they're taking us, which is quite unfortunate right now in the United States. Uh, Stephen, thank you, sir. I always appreciate it. I'm grateful. Have a good weekend. Um, you too. Thank you very much. I'm going to have a look, very quick look at the futures before we leave you. The, these are the futures and the way they're trading at the moment. Uh, we are going to be down. The Nasdaq's going to have the worst of it all. It's now off 1%. But we've had such good gains, really, that one really has to put that all into perspective. Anyway, the opening bell on Wall Street will be with us after this short break. This is First Move on a Friday. And we're off to the races. Today, the trading day has begun in New York. Warm welcome to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running, and exactly as predicted, <coughs> they're down. Well, they're down, as you can see, the, the Dow is off over half a percent. We'll expect the Nasdaq to be down even more. The Nasdaq was lower by uh, 1% in futures trading, and so that's how we are at the beginning. Now let's see, 1.5% for the Nasdaq. Now let's see how it moves further as it goes on. Uh, Intel's tumbling on weak outlook. It may have to outsource its next generation of chips, which would be fairly dramatic for a chip-making company. And the big challenges for investors next week, four FANG stocks are reporting. You've got Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Alphabet, the Fed Reserve holds a policy meeting and, of course, there's all the questions of stimulus. Today, though, the FAA has ordered emergency inspections on Boeing 737-NG, next generation, and classic models. They're the ones, the majority of them, uh, that are flying. The MAX, of course, is grounded. Um, they've been in storage, as many airlines have decided to store, well, have been forced to store planes because there's simply not demand. But apparently these inactive planes don't have problems in the engines. Pete Montine is with me from Washington. It's all to do with the fifth stage bleed air check, which apparently, because the planes have been stored for more than seven days, well, what happens? What's the risk with the fifth stage bleed air check? Well, it's a tiny valve within the jet engines, Richard, that are supposed to automatically close eventually. But what's happening is these planes have been sitting for so long, the valves have corroded, they've rusted, and that can cause jet engines to fail in flight, essentially turning a 737, a 150,000-pound airplane, into a glider, possibly one of the worst possible scenarios for a flight crew to experience. You know, this emergency action by the FAA is huge in scope. It affects more than 2,000 737s registered here in the United States. And what's so interesting is the FAA says this is an unintended side effect of the pandemic. Just like an old car that's been sitting, problems start to creep in. That is exactly what's happening in this case. I want to read you part of this emergency action by the FAA, which says, uh, these problems can cause compressor stalls in the jet engine, dual engine power loss without the ability to restart in the air, which could result in a forced off airport landing. A very serious situation for any flight crew. The FAA is ordering that airlines who fly 737s 
to go and inspect airplanes that have been sitting for longer than a week, and that is a lot of them. Airlines have parked planes in every nook and cranny, closed runways and taxiways at airports across the country. You know, people were looking for reasons to not fly because of the pandemic, and now they just found one more reason to skip commercial air travel, Richard. So um, they've obviously discovered, I mean, one wonders how they even thought to look at the particular thing to check it. It's such a small piece of the aircraft, but they did. And by all accounts, it is relatively straightforward repair um, or at least uh, maintenance to do. Yeah, relatively straightforward, although the incidents were relatively large, at least large enough for the FAA to issue this order. They said that there were four incidents in a row which ended up leading to this emergency action, which is very rare for the FAA. And the scope of this is so rare as well. It will be a straightforward fix for the airlines. They've been staying on top of this. I have seen uh, United's long-term storage facility at Dulles, where they've been looking at airplanes, trying to keep them safe and ready to go. Now they just have one more thing to do. Um, I I have to... I do love that phrase, off-airport landing. I mean, um, talk about the the masters of the understatement at the FAA. Uh, It is a serious matter. Pete Muntean, finally, um, should we expect other issues and problems as aircraft are brought back into service? Well, there's so many airplanes that have been parked, and airlines were sort of banking on this recovery to come that they have not quite seen. They've not seen the V recovery that they had hoped. But it's not just 737s that are parked. There are 757s, 767s, 777s that I saw in just my visit at Dulles, where there were only a few dozen airplanes parked. But we know that situation is repeated at airports across the country. So no doubt that this could creep in uh, as a problem in other airplanes. You know, when airplanes sit, it's a problem, especially in moist environments where uh, things can rust and cause corrosion. And that can be really serious. That's why we see airplanes parked more often in desert, dry environments, big boneyards like in Mojave, California and in Tucson. So this is an issue because the airlines have had to find space to put these airplanes away, sometimes not ideal places. Uh, Pete Montine, thank you. Pete, Pete's recording from Washington, D.C. The announcement on the 737 uh, came before my interview with Gary Kelly, which I did last night, the CEO of Southwest, which is somewhat unfortunate because Southwest is an all-737 fleet. So obviously I would have asked him about it, but it happened, but the interview was last night, so that's why he doesn't answer in this particular interview. We did talk about the recovery that was taking place that has now stalled, and I asked him what this meant for Southwest certainly not welcome news. Uh, we were on a, a really improving, uh, very nice trajectory, a really a line of sight to the end of the year if things kept continuing to getting back to break-even cash flow. And um, yeah, we've lost hundreds of millions of dollars of momentum here in the third quarter. So I don't think we've taken a step backwards. We've just lost momentum and I think it's uh, you know directly correlated with the spike in COVID-19 cases here in the United States. Uh, that's very disappointing to see that, and um, you know you can see the direct correlation uh, with travel and future bookings. The issue of air travel, um, passengers still don't believe, no matter how many times you tell them about HEPA filters 
and the like. Passengers are still worried about flying the middle seat uh, uh, and so forth, aren't they? I think there's some degree of anxiety there, but I think um, more important than that is people travel for a purpose. Uh, They want to go places. They want to be able to do things when they get there. And you, you look around the world and there are no sporting events. Uh, businesses aren't having meetings. There aren't conventions. Uh, and a lot of uh, entertainment venues are either closed or very limited. Uh, there are quarantines in place in certain states. So all that, you know, very much provides a deterrent. That's on the more consumer side of travel. Then on the business side of travel, large corporations in particular have travel bans in place. So I think we need to have very... Um, modest expectations in the near term here about travel until we get to the point where there's a vaccine uh, or therapeutics. Finally, Gary, what's your gut telling you about the situation? When all the numbers have been put in front of you by the CFO and the COO has given you the operating numbers and you've seen the revenue forecast and you've digested it all, what's your gut telling you? Well, I think um, in the end, I feel like there's every reason to be hopeful at Southwest Airlines. We're the strongest in the industry. We came into this uh, crisis with the least amount of balance sheet leverage we've had in our history. We have uh, plentiful levels of cash to see our way through. We're still in investment grade credit. We have outstanding service that our people offer every single day. We have very high brand rankings from our customers, and we have low cost on an operating basis in what is a very low fare environment. And I think it's going to be this way for a long time. So we're very well prepared for the crisis. Uh, So I'm confident, uh, I'm encouraged, I'm I'm hopeful. What What we also know is that this too shall pass. There will be a vaccine, we will defeat this virus, we can put a man on the moon 50 years ago, we can beat this coronavirus. So we just need to be smart and manage our way through this. We needed some optimism on a Friday as we go into the weekend. In a moment after the break, more optimism from the former head and CEO of Honeywell, who's written a new book that is rapidly becoming the go-to and, well, the definitive word on short-termism versus long-termism and how the CEO needs to negotiate both. After the break, though, we'll discuss winning now, winning later in a COVID-19 environment. David Cote is with me after. We got, we got earnings numbers from the industrial giant Honeywell this morning. Better than expected was interesting. Higher than expected profits, even though there was a 19% plunge in sales. Well, of course, we can all understand. We don't need to waste too much time talking about the sales side of the equation uh, with the, the, the virus. And it, but Honeywell has pulled full-year guidance because of COVID-19. Uh, along with many other companies, as CEOs are grappling with uncertain environments. And my next guest has written this book, which is rapidly, well, the, the, the reviews are in, and the consensus seems to be that it is extremely useful, the advice that he's giving. Winning now, winning later. He's the former CEO of Honeywell, and he's David Cody, and he joins me now. David, it is good to have you. Thank you. The, I, I wonder... The, the strategy 
bearing in mind what you've said in your book of short-termism versus long-termism, how you have to balance those two in this era of the quarterly report, how would you have balanced those two in a COVID crisis? I would say, first of all, it's not so much a matter of balance as it is uh, how do you achieve two seemingly conflicting things at the same time, which is a concept we ran Honeywell on. And you think of it this way, you want good long-term results, good short-term results, do you want people closest to the action empowered, or do you want uh, good control so nothing bad happens, do you want low inventory, do you want good customer service? In every case, you want both. In any crisis, you still need to be thinking about both, whether it's a recession or uh, anything else. So while you need to take the short-term actions that you have to take to maintain uh, viability of the, of the entity, the business, at the same time, you want to make sure that you're still focused on what's important for the long term. And there's this old adage that I like that says when you're up to your butt in alligators, it's tough to remember the original goal was to drain the swamp. However, if you're a leader at a time like this, you still have to find that a small amount of time to get your head above the fray and be looking for where are you going? Are you still doing the right things that are going to make you successful for the long term? Now, I'm hearing numerous CEOs <clears throat> trying to do that, but the extent of this crisis <clears throat> is so big and existential for so many companies, it's almost, almost impossible to, to, to even find that small space to think of the future or to think about, you know, opportunities. What would your advice be to a CEO who finding themselves firefighting? Um, well, I would say, you know, e each company's circumstances are going to be different. So it's tough for me to kind of give a blanket statement that applies to 100% of companies. However, I would say that, uh, again, as a leader, part of your job is to make sure that you're still looking out for the long term, because eventually the long term becomes the short term. You don't want a pyrrhic victory when you uh, finally are done with the crisis. And this crisis is severe. I mean, the depth of uh, this recession, and hopefully it's a short one, but the depth of it has been severe. That being said, you still need to be thinking about the future. You can't ignore that at the same time you're fighting your current battles. Right, now, on the, did you ever just simply want to say to analysts, to, to, the, to the street, you know, get your head out of the quarterly report? Can you not see what I am doing here? You know, the Chinese are brilliant at not worrying about tomorrow because they're too busy worrying to make sure that the whole thing is still there in 100 years. How do we improve our own uh, view in that sense? Well, uh, I'd, have, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I felt some of that frustration at times, especially in the beginning. Uh, however, again, right. my point is not ignore the short term to the benefit of the long term. It's how do you find a way to generate enough of a return in the short term so that you can be uh, investing in the long term at the same time? And you have to generate income flexibility. And that's why I was a big believer in growing sales and holding fixed costs constant which is a much easier thing to say. It's easy to do the math, but it's not so easy to do, but it's important.
Dave, I, I, I want to get your take on work-life balance, because the one thing that maybe the pandemic has made us because we're working from home, I don't know, but the, the traditional view of we've got a great workaholic over there, look at Jim or look at Jane, ah, they never stop. But do you need to be working in an almost addictive fashion to get to the top? It's not healthy, is it? How do you balance work and life? Well, that's one that um, everybody needs to make a decision on their own because everybody's circumstances are different. However, I can say that when it came to how did I accomplish those two seemingly conflicting things, having a good professional life and a good family life, uh, I looked at it and said, well, there's really three things that demand my time, uh, professional life, uh, family life, and social life. And I felt like I had enough time for two of them. So I pretty much didn't have much of a social life as I was growing up in my career, saying I was going to focus on those two. And you find a way to do it. But everybody's circumstances are different. Everybody has to figure it out. But you have to let something go on amongst those three. I think it's impossible to, to do all three. It's just a question of which one is that. So if there is a kernel of, of nugget that you, you, you would impart to somebody watching now who is just starting, who may be their own business, what would it be? Well, I'd probably go back to um, advice my mom and dad used to give me. Uh, my dad always used to say, be a leader, not a follower. My mom used to say, think for yourself. And as a kid, it sounds pretty irritating to hear that a bunch of times. But I can say that the older I've gotten and the more I progress professionally, the more I realized the ability to think independently was a lot more rare than being smart. There were all kinds of smart people who could explain why things were the way they were. Uh, it was much tougher to find people who could look at the same set of circumstances, same facts, get all the same opinions, and come to a different conclusion that might actually make a lot more sense and not be consistent with conventional wisdom. So my advice would be to always think independently. Dave, great to have you. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And uh, just listening to that, Dave, reminded me, of course, of, uh, of the three things. I think it's, it's sex in the city, uh, not sex city, um, where you can have a great apartment, you can have a great job, and you can have a great love life. You can have any two, but you can't have all three at the same time. In a moment. Americans change how they get the burritos, huge American chain of Mexican restaurants, and the shift it's going to digital sales in a moment. talking there just a moment ago about shorters and versus long terms and, some, and how you have to balance the two. Uh, take, for example, Chipotle, the uh, Mexican restaurant, which has shifted its business quite dramatically towards digitization, managing to do delivery and takeout uh, to make up the difference. I spoke to the CEO, Brian Nichol, who explained the theory and why the company had made the changes. Obviously, what we want to do is make sure that as we operate during these challenging times, we do it in a safe way, 
And then we do it in a way where we can provide people access to, you know, the food that they want to have access to, whether it's delivery, takeout, um, you know, get it to them off premise so they can potentially enjoy it at home or outside where they, they feel safe eating meals. Are you at the point now of saying for the foreseeable future, off premise and delivery is going to be the significant, particularly delivery is going to be an area where you're going to have to put more focus, even more focus? Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's going to be a balancing act between being able to order ahead and get food for takeout um, as well as delivery. You know, I think some people still prefer to have the control of that experience where, you know, they control what time they pick it up and what happens with their food from the moment it leaves the restaurant until it gets home. And then for those occasions where, you know, you've got the time to wait for a delivery driver, um, you know, the good news is we can create contactless delivery and give people access to food that way. But I definitely think for the time being, uh, people are going to put a real premium on the idea of having a safe eating experience, which for a lot of people, that psychology right now is still an off-premise experience where they can kind of control more of the environment of those that are around them and uh, where they're choosing to eat their meals. You did a deal with Grubhub and Uber. Um, they are, of course, our drivers. But in the sense that you have, I mean, I, 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 Chipotle, do you have to be agnostic as to the delivery service? Yeah, I mean, what we found is uh, for Chipotle, a lot of people wanted to have access to our food for delivery. And obviously, the aggregators that you mentioned, in order for them to be, you know, a compelling aggregator, they want to have all the you know, restaurant options that customers want. So this works out really well where we want to be on their sites. They want us to be on their site and the customer wants us to show up in all these places. So uh, we enjoy the fact that we have partnerships with DoorDash, Grubhub, uh, Uber Eats and Postmates. Um, you know, they're the big players uh, and, you know, we need each other to give the customers a great delivery experience. So we're working really well with each of them and uh, we're really happy with the experiences that we're providing customers right now. And that's first move for today. I'm Richard Quest. Julia's back with you on Monday. And of course, means business five hours from now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.